So my name is Will Downing. Um, I've been at Broadway since I was born. Um, I was born here uh, um, when uh, 1998 is when my parents came to Broadway and my mom was pregnant with me. But I would say that when I really like came a part of the Broadway family and community was when I was in college. So I would say since in those past five years, um, I have been really blessed to become a small group leader with our uh, youth, um, Kid Zone. Um, I've been a part of Kid Zone for the past five years in a small group leader role, um, sometimes a large group leader role um, in Kid Zone as well. Um, I've been able to lead our Relay for Life team um, as the team captain, and I've also been able to help with the Haven which is something that Caleb Kirshner does with our uh, special needs kids. Um, so those are just a few things. I would say one thing that Broadway uh, really, really was able to bless me with was the Foundry. Uh, the Foundry is a nonprofit that Broadway has been a huge part of since its opening. I started working there my freshman year of college when I came back to Broadway um, and still have a great partnership um, with that ministry. So those are just, just a handful of things that I've been able to be a part of um, within the Broadway community. Serving is, um, I think sometimes when people think serving, they're like, oh, yep, you know, it's either like op two opposite sides of the spectrum. Uh, oh, super simple, super easy, no attachment, and then it's like no, too much commitment, um, please don't ask me again, that kind of thing. And that's all understandable. I would say it's important to serve because um, we, especially here at Broadway, I feel like we work together um, as a group of people to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus. And it, I don't want to say that just Jesus was about serving, but he was about loving and loving people. Um, and I think we can love people by giving back to them. And what I've learned through serving is when you, like I said before about the foundry, when you think that you're going to give and give and you're going to have all this impact, it turns around and it, it impacts you. And so I think the impact that serving can have on you is super important. And then also we, talk, we don't really talk with serving enough about community. We build such a great community through that. So I think what I've learned is I've, I've made families with just by serving, whether it's the people I'm serving with or the people I'm serving uh, for, I've made like families that I will have the rest of my life um, just because of the service impact um, that I'm not just doing for them, but I'm doing to be more like Jesus, to follow him. I would say I found the truths about myself um, from serving and uh, kind of you hit that great, but like my gifts of how I can grow relationships with people and learn more about where people are and be able to give back to them um, like I've been given back to, like we all have, um, but it really just kind of be real and because that's what I feel like Jesus calls us to, to be is real, to be ourselves. So I feel like that's a gift I've found. I've definitely found some humility of like, man, you, like I said, you think you're, you're going to be the Superman, the superhero sometimes. It's real easy to feel that way. And so I think being able, that goes back to being real and just being honest with yourself about, you know, what you can do and what things you have to ask um, for help to do. But I think sometimes what we maybe struggle with, or like you said, our humility, I think that causes, the, causes us to say no. And instead of really digging into what can we get, where can our gifts come from, those things that we struggle with or we need to ask help for. You might be, being say, be saying no to a gift because you're worried about a struggle. So I think if you're actually able to, to look at and see and learn more about yourself, um, then you might be able to enable an opportunity that, like I said before, could absolutely change your life and grow your relationship with God too. I think we sometimes forget in serving and in ministry 
and serving where God calls us, that there's a bigger picture. And so sometimes we think about just that one thing and, and being able to be behind the scenes and being able to actually uh, be a part of the big thing. It, it's super humbling because sometimes you're like, oh, why can't I be on that? You know, why can I not be on the stage? Why can I not be in front of everybody? Um, so I think sometimes we think, and, and I found that way in, in different areas of ministry, whether it be with children or adults, that what I thought was important is not always important for me to be there. I might need to be at the chair, at the table, instead of standing in front of everybody. And that's super hard, I'm super shy. So that's super hard for me at first. I was like, you know, no, why am I not on that stage? But then, you know, and I still learn every day, but there, there's, there is a place for me when it comes to serving um, that will do a lot of impact, will do a lot of good for somebody. I just have to think about the big picture. Let's thank uh, Will Downing for sharing his story. Just thinking about people who serve, I could have picked any number of people, but Will uh, is super shy. As he said, he is able to express himself well and uh, certainly uh, has grown up here in an attitude of service to others. And so we celebrate that as we celebrate it really within our whole community. I have to confess, I didn't know how to dress anymore. Um, we have... Uh, it, this service is a little more informal sometimes, but I, sometimes I show up in a suit and tie. I want you to know that it's okay to be informal or wear a suit and tie. But today I bring it up because we had a baptism at our 815 service, and we have a baptism at our 11 o'clock service. And that's the third week in a row that we've had baptisms around here, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we don't have one scheduled for next week, but hey. Talk, talk to us after the service. We'll be back here at the tables and would uh, love to set that up. Our baptism at the 11 o'clock service uh, was set up last Sunday. Uh, this, uh, one of our African families that we've known for the last six or seven years uh, came in, and uh, they have a two-week-old, and uh, we're ready to get, get, get the baptism uh, done. And uh, their names are, are the, mom, the dad's name is Masa, and the, dad, the mom's name is Mommy. And uh, so I'm leaning over this two-week-old little boy and said, what's his name? And they said, Dennis. <laughs> so our African folks uh, bring a lot of joy to us. And if you ever want to kind of be around those guys uh, at our 11 o'clock service, you know, uh, it, uh, it, I hadn't planned to say this, but it kind of ties to the message because uh, several years ago there was one of, uh, a, a person in our community, an African, New American, uh, who was killed uh, in a an accident was hit by a car and the folks didn't have any place to do the funeral. They asked if they could do it here. We said yes and 1,100 people showed up for the funeral. And it has been an ongoing relationship ever since and we're still trying to figure out how to be in ministry together, but uh, one act of mercy, you know, just us being who we are uh, has more power than, than we realize. And so today I, I want you to hear this message as a celebration of a selfless community of action, a reminder that those selfless acts that we do naturally and don't maybe even think that much about do in fact extend hope into our city, into our world. And that is our vision language. In this series, we're telling stories, stories of our people, the story of scripture, and then the bigger story of God to help us catch that vision and remind ourselves of its power and then consider what it means to do that now. Uh, that, so we're telling stories, find ourselves in those stories. Will's story is one 
uh, a powerful one. You have a story. The, the scriptures have a story. And uh, in fact, as I think about a story that gets to the power of a selfless community of action, the power of a single act of mercy, I don't know that any, uh, any story ha- or anything from the scriptures perhaps has had more impact than this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And what the Good Samaritan story does is helps clarify what we're talking about when we say we dream of a selfless community of action that extends hope into our city and to our world. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that there needs to be a reminder of that, that Jesus is clarifying something, and that there, in this story, as you pay attention, there's a series of questions that are asked. And we're going to look at why we're asking these kinds of questions, why they were asked in the scriptures, and, 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 and then how do we keep asking the right question until we get to not only the right question, but then a, a, a good answer. And the Good Samaritan does that. It, it rolls through almost a deconstruction of, of a faith process to get down to what is essential. So Jesus hears a question, tells a story, and resets a perspective. An expert in the law was testing Jesus to size him up. He comes up and asks a question. You know, sometimes we ask, ask faith questions because we, we think we know the answer already. Um, and uh, that's what's going on here. In fact, the more insider we get with this thing, the more we have worked through these questions and maybe even have um, worked through the answers and maybe even have found the people who agree with us with the question and the answer, and then we have groups, and that's what's going on here. These questions have been asked over and over and over again. People knew the answer. They knew how you were supposed to respond. All of it is to size Jesus up. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life is the first question. I want to suggest that that's not maybe the best question that gets asked. But for us, maybe is a starting point for all of us. How do I get into this thing? What, what is the fullness of life that I'm, that I'm, that I'm offered in, in God? How do I get into this story? What happens immediately, immediately in that is we begin to get the full scope of the answer. You know, um, so, so the question comes to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, being a good rabbi, answers the question with another question. Well, what's written in the law? What do you think? He gives it back to him. Uh, sometimes I do this, by the way, in counseling, when people ask tough faith questions, and I don't know the answer, and I don't know how to, you know, I have to think about it. I, I just say, what do, well, what do you think? And then I go, hmm, yeah, interesting. Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This is Deuteronomy 6.5. It is what was the standard answer. It, it has come to summarize the whole law. People recited this every single day. No surprise. And then the expert pairs that command with one found in Leviticus. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly, go forth and live. End of story. But it's not the end of the story. And the reason that it's not the end of the story is why we are telling the story today. Because, because it, it gets to the heart of the, of the question that, um, that we're all asking. How do we get to the fullness of life that God wants for us? And so love God with all your heart, 
your soul, your mind, your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the standard answer. Everybody in hearing that day would have said, yeah, that's right. And truthfully, every person I know who's a Christian would say the same thing. Maybe, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but there's nobody I know who follows Jesus who would argue with this. That's right. Every Christian I know is on board. But as they say, the devil is in the detail. So the expert then asks another question. Well, let's clarify this more. Who is my neighbor? Well, then who is my neighbor? And, the, and, and then Luke gives us a little clue here. He asks this in order to what? Justify himself. He's trying to place himself in the, the theological framework so that he, Jesus hasn't, hasn't cleared this up so well. He wants to kind of open it back up. Why does he need to justify himself? Well, if you think about it, loving God and loving neighbor are a pretty tall order to fill, aren't they? And so not only were, were the questions so far pretty standard, but this question is standard as well. Well, then who is my neighbor? And this, this is important. This has all been worked out as well. Everybody listening would have known that there is a standard answer to this. And that had been worked out because when you think about it, loving God is a pretty tall order and loving neighbor is a tall order. What must I do to inherit, life, inherit eternal life? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands. How many of you got that covered? Right? And that's, and, and there's, that's just honest, right? And so that sounds like a lot. John Wesley put it this way. He says, loving God with all your heart means to love him with the warmest of affection, with the most vigorous efforts of your will and in the most wise and reasonable manner we can. By the way, John Wesley thought that was possible. Uh, he, uh, he called that Christian perfection, which wasn't a state of being perfect, but rather the actual lived ability to love God, the actual lived ability to, out of that to love your neighbor. He thought that was possible. But even from the time of John Wesley, some people uh, who followed John Wesley said, I'm not sure. Is that really, is that really possible? And when you hear that great, big, expansive thing, love God with everything that you have, the, the, the natural human response is to say, okay, break that down for me a little bit. Give me the practicals. And if you could boil that down to the basic, minimum requirements, tell me what I can do so I don't have to feel anxious about it, because that sounds like, sounds like a lot. And so that had been happening uh, in the time of Jesus. The term translated as neighbor simply means anyone who is near. Well, think about the people who fall into that category for you, anyone who is near. And think of how challenging it is to love those people as yourself, right? To love your family, to love your actual neighbors. I don't know if any of you have an HOA. Cha seems challenging enough to me, right? Seems challenging enough to me just to break this down to the bare minimum. And so that term neighbor, by the time of Jesus, had been given a technical definition. It was to, to love your fellow Israelite, which by definition means the person like you, the person near you. 
And so then Jesus, of course, tells a story that disrupts all of that. It disrupts the questions. It disrupts why we're asking the questions and gives us a whole other way of thinking about the whole deal. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. It is a, a parable of the world, of the brokenness uh, and the need out there. And the, the audience that Jesus was speaking to would have understood the story. They would have understood the impl implications, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, a span of 20 miles. It dropped something like 3,600 feet. And with switchbacks and kind of nooks and crannies was a place for robbers, uh, for thieves, for, to wait for victims. It had become, become known as the Red or Bloody Way. Uh, it was a, a setup for the, what is coming. And, the, and, and the, of course, the good news in the story is that Jesus begins to outline people coming through, three of them, actually, who could be heroes in the story. A priest happened to be going down the same road. What a relief. A fellow Israelite, somebody who knows what it means to be a neighbor, in fact, who is in charge of helping the rest of them understand what it means to be a neighbor. Surely he will be a neighbor to the man. But when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. Another possible hero shows up almost immediately, a Levite who is of the tribe of the priests. Again, someone who is helping lead the whole community, a possible hero, a religious professional, someone who knew what it meant to be neighbor, and of course he passes by on the other side. Now, it's easy to be hard on these men. Uh, when you've, heard, you've heard the story before. It's easy to be hard on them because we know they didn't do the right thing. But the point is that they actually had good religious reasons not to be a neighbor. It's the paradox sometimes of this thing, that we get so deep into it, so caught up in it, that we miss the forest for the trees. But because of cultic purity, they needed to avoid the messiness. We don't need to get too much into this, but the, it, was, it was a rule that not even their shadow could pass over uh, a corpse. They couldn't, they couldn't defile themselves. And everybody who heard the story would have understood the tension. They would have understood the paradox of their own religion, that their, their leadership and the, the realities of their faith uh, through their leaders created this, this, this tension. What's, I think, interesting is they all know that there's a third person coming, right? Uh, it's uh, the comedic rule of three. It's the narrative rule of three. It's one's not going to get it, the second one's not get it, but the third one is, is going to. And so you can imagine everybody leaning in. We, can, we know why those two guys didn't do it, and we all kind of know who's next. And the natural implication would be that it would have been somebody like them. If the religious leaders didn't get it, then the, the lay people like us, the average Joe, the average Jane, they're going to step up. We're going to be the hero of the story. Do you ever read the Bible like this, by the way? It's easy to do. To put yourself either in the point, the place of the hero of the story, as you, we all would tend to here, or in the place of Jesus. Like, oh, do I get to be Jesus in this story? Um, I, I got to play Jesus one time as a kid in one of those, you know, bathrobe and, you know, kind of Christmas pageant kind of things. There was the uh, uh, Lent thing. I got to be Jesus one time. But tends, uh, it tends to be that, that when I put myself in the place of Jesus in the story, I'm kind of missing the point. 
The Good Samaritan uh, is told in a way that reels us in because uh, we think we're going to be the hero of the story. Because we know what a neighbor is, is somebody like us. And so we get to be the people who live that out. And then Jesus, of course, surprises us. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And there would have been a gasp in the crowd. We don't feel that. But it would have been instantly a shock to everybody. In fact, I can imagine the man who asked the original question standing there in front of God and everybody, kind of seeing what Jesus has done, and just sort of breaking out into a sweat. Samaritan comes by and took pity on him. Jews and Samaritans had been at odds for hundreds of years. The Jewish people did not consider a Samaritan someone who qualified in the definition technically of a neighbor. They were enemies. They didn't make the cut. They weren't even on the list of people that they would have expected to come through. The Samaritan, by the way, had just as many reasons not to be a neighbor as they did. Don't miss this. In fact, perhaps more so. The rules were that Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. They didn't interact. The Samaritan could have easily been the, the one who walked away as well, and everybody would have liked that story. However, the Samaritan does something totally unexpected when he sees the man. He focuses on him and then springs into action. Jesus tells the story so that it is clear that this is a story about action. He, his description of what happens next is packed full of action verbs. He goes to the man. He bandages, his, bandages him. He puts oil on him. He places him on his own donkey. He brings him to an inn. He personally cares for him there. He leaves money for him. He pledges to return, and he offers to pay the expenses that accumulate. Now, to the person who's asking, what is, what is the minimum deal for being a neighbor? Jesus tells a story. Does, it doesn't sound like the minimum, minimum requirement, does it? He tells a story that blows all of that up. And he tells a story of one who fulfills not the letter of the law, but the heart of it. And so Jesus turns back to the man, the expert who has come self-righteously before Jesus, and then asks the question again. And now we've gotten to the right question. Who is the neighbor? What we love about this story is that the man can't even say the word Samaritan. So it forces him to put it in very simple terms. And what does he say? I mean, this, these, these words, you know, at this point ought to be just seared onto our hearts. Who is the neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. And that word mercy is so powerful. Uh, it is, uh, in Hebrew, has to do with the same root word as oil. It is a word that implies healing. And so, of course, it Im implies in the story of the Good Samaritan the ongoing need for healing in the world. And it, and it, and it offers up the medicine as the story unfolds. And sim simply offering up to the world people who will be neighbors, people who will find a way to push all of the distractions and all of the excuses aside and just simply do something 
I mean, a way to answer the question, who is, who is my neighbor? And one way, it's, it's simply to say, the person who actually did something. And that something is not just something. It is an act of mercy. It is a balm of healing. It is an intentional effort to be part of the healing of the world. As we think about the legacy of this story, and as we think about the Christian story, as we imagine a community of healing, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, as we imagine a community of selfless action, as we're talking about today, we think about all of the ways the church has performed this role for society. The church has been the one who shows up with acts of mercy, deciding that there might be good reasons not to, but we're gonna anyway. Tending to the sick, our ministry with the dying, our historical legacy in those, serving children who've been abused, fostering and adopting, caring for the aged, serving with those with special needs, tending to the poor, educating children, visiting prisons. There's somebody who asks me to send them my sermon every week because they visit somebody in jail and they take them my sermon. I feels like though that person probably needs mercy uh, beyond just having to listen to a sermon. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an act of love. Giving away resources, serving on boards and leading organizations of service, deciding to do our jobs a certain way where we show up and offer mercy. The implication is that there is an ongoing no need for healing, and that doesn't somehow trip us up. We just show up. And we do. As I think about a contagious community of hospitality, as I think about a, a life-giving community of growth, and as I think about a selfless community of action, um, you know, I think uh, of Broadway stories all the time. And so I want to just take us to one, one final thought and, and a, a framework that I think we can all relate to, which is when we experience the tornadoes in December. And the way I experienced that was through the trauma of the, the, the event itself uh, and running outside. I found out that I was the guy who was going to run out and jump over um, utility wires and be stupid. Um, but when, when I looked out of my window, the first thing I saw after the tornado was the roof of my neighbor's house was gone. And, um, I, and as I thought about that, um, Jeremy and Laura Vincent's house was 100 yards or less uh, that way, and I couldn't see it. And I went out the door not knowing if it was, if it was gone or not. That was, that was the first five minutes of the tornado. It was not, it was there, they were fine. But then as like a lot of folks, you know, the story just kind of unfolds, and um, one of those uh, kind of key moments for me in the tornado was the next morning, driving uh, up through Magnolia, trying to, we were just trying to find people at that point. And I've shared in the past that I ended up uh, in Lois Willis's house. And Lois Willis is our oldest uh, member. Um, that's part of our Broadway welcome dinner, by the way, one of our trivia questions. Uh, who is our oldest living member? Uh, Lois Willis turns um, 104 in December. And so on the Wednesday before the tornado, I was in her house praying with her and her family on her 103rd birthday. And then on Saturday, I was in that same living room in the middle of the devastation, praying with her again, thanking God that she was alive. And um, 
when we came in that very same spot to gather hands and pray, there's a tree now on her house, and she was out of that out of her house for seven months. She's back, by the way, because uh, she wanted to cook her own food, and nobody could nobody could do it like she does it, and she's right. Uh, but as we prayed, um, you know what she said? I want you to pray for all my neighbors, the people who have really been affected by this. That's that's my vision. That's our vision. That's who who we're being called up to be to think about other people in that in that moment. I just I, I, it's it's to this day so moving to me. On Monday morning after the tornado, some of our pastors got together around the community, and we were trying to figure out how to get resources to people. And one of the critical moments uh, in that with, our, with the Methodist pastor and then with my supervisor, the district superintendent, we said, do, how do we get resources to focus? Is it okay to set up a fund uh, through our local church? And he said, yes, do it. And with all of our, you know, sort of infrastructure in place, that was the, the first of many steps that allowed us just to be a, a funnel, a, a, a part of the chain of getting things where they uh, needed to go. There were conversations with many of you who are in different places in the community, and very quickly it became a network of getting stuff where it needed to go. And our partnership with the housing authority, we began to put people up, and we had uh, 27 families housed uh, within the, that, that week or two. There's a point where our welcome center was full of supplies and we didn't know what to do with them and somebody called and said, there's more coming. And we said, how many? And they said like 20 semis and we thought that we need more than this. Uh, and some of you got into action and made space for all that. We began to collect funds and help resource those houses so that people when they moved into the housing authority had everything that they needed. And some of you delivered, some of you donated. It was, it was remarkable. I want to re- report uh, that in that money that was given, a lot was directly uh, applied in the moment to relief. We needed to get stuff to people immediately, and so we were able to give out checks to the people who were affected within our congregation, and then beyond that, for immediate assistance. Uh, but there's still money left. In fact, uh, there's about $100,000 left. And we have been in conversation with the housing authority about what to do uh, with that, because within the housing authority, there are people who are um, still living in in temporary housing, and there are people we we know who are coming who have been okay and sort of holding on, but they they don't have a long-term solution. So we've been working for a long-term solution. Our council's talked about this, and what we're planning to do is help put up some tornado-affected families uh, who are who are moving mostly out of uh, rental housing or out of not having their own home now to being able to have permanent housing. And the goal is to uh, do down payment assistance with probably four, three or four, five families up to maybe 20 or $25,000 each through a program the housing authority already has that will take some of those families, there are about four or five that we've identified now, who will go through home ownership training and will be prepared through their programs that will either get a house that's been renovated or a brand new home in the new subdivision that's going over by the housing authority so that um, there is a sustainable way to get those folks into housing. That's just one example of how we've worked with our partners uh, through your generosity. And as I was talking to somebody this morning, they said, you know, I'm so glad we've done those things, what's next? 
you know, any number, any number of things that we've been a part of in our, in our attempt to act like Jesus, just as Will said, in our attempt to be selfless and humble and act. Uh, and so we are going to have some ongoing conversations about that. I want to mention again our Reaching Forward effort, which started last Wednesday. We'll continue those conversations as we go. If you ha- didn't have a chance to sign up for that, you can come. You can sign up this week, and, and you can come. We're going to continue to ask what are our gifts and what's God calling us, and what are the places that need mercy in our community, as we imagine a community of good Samaritans who find a way to do something and then continue to find a way to do the right things that apply mercy where it is needed, healing where it is needed. We imagine a community of people who find the power of not shrinking down the love God and love neighbor thing to a manageable size, but instead allow God to just keep blowing that up on us, extending and expanding our impact through simply serving wherever we can. And we imagine a selfless community of action, which almost always does the thing beyond anything we could describe or imagine to ex- hope, extend hope into our community and our world. Let's uh, enter into a moment of prayer and uh, invite the band up as we'll sing a song and then go. But if you would, just kind of take a moment and uh, find yourself in God's presence. And if you would, just place your hands in your lap facing upward as a symbol of your need first and foremost to receive the grace and mercy that we've held up today. A reminder that our acts of service are actually simply the the response of those who have been loved by God who have received mercy themselves, who have an ongoing need for God. God, we're thankful for your grace that is given so freely to us. And then we imagine those hands still facing up and recognize that there are things in them that get in the way of us receiving. Just like the people in the story Jesus told, there are real reasons and human realities that get in the way of doing the simple thing that is needed. And in these moments, we identify those. We name them. We give them a name. And God, we offer a a prayer of confession that for every single one of us in this room, there have been obstacles to your grace coming to us and flowing through us. Forgive us, we pray. If you would, just take your hands and face them down now as a a way of saying you're going to let go, that God will take those and we're not going to hold on to them anymore. We're going to give up our reasons and our excuses. We're going to give up our habits and our addictions. We're going to give up our need to justify ourselves like the man in the story. And then we turn our hands up one more time, ready to receive. 
so that what we hold now is the mercy of God given to us, that the thing that we have to take with us as we go, the thing that we have to offer the world is something that comes from on high.